When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Lore Watch, a roundtable freeform discussion about lore and our favorite media. I'm your host, Joe Perez, one of several lore-focused folks from Blizzard Watch, and I've got my marvelous co-host with me today, Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? Hi. 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 Four mats in a trench coat. Five mats in a trench coat. <laughs> All right. Keep counting. Well, today we are going to be answering questions from you, our wonderful listeners. If you have questions for this podcast or any of our other podcasts, be sure to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com. If you don't want to send us an email, you can go ahead and hit us up on Discord. If you're a Patreon subscriber, you get access to our Patreon Q and podcast questions channel, where we do tend to look at first in terms of getting our questions as a way of saying thank you to those that continue to support us monetarily. If you can't support us monetarily, and you don't want to do that email thing, you can also hit us up on a Discord channel for Q and podcast questions. In all cases, we ask that you specify what show your question is for as it makes our lives infinitely easier. Uh, and then there's a whole lot less wrestling between me and Matt. But we're going to get started with the first question, which comes from Vorathil. Bit of a throwback question, but I haven't been able to find a definitive answer. Initially, the Blood Knights access the light by siphoning from Muru. After the Sunwell is reignited, it is mentioned that they now draw the light through the Sunwell. Does this mean that because they utilize the Sunwell, they do not tap into the light like other Paladin Orders and are not true believers along the lines of Torellian? Liadrin has had some text where she appears to have refound her faith connection with the light, but is that required for other blood knights, given that they just utilize the sun well? To be fair, blood knights have sort of had a very complicated, uh, I don't want to say reimagining, but the lines have ever been blurred since the end of, I want to say cataclysm, really, right? Like when we started getting into the order hall stuff, it got a little more, I don't want to say complicated, but... You're correct in that initially they were siphoning the light from Maru, and they were using that and bending it to sort of their their will. 
And when the Sunwell was reignited, it sort of reintroduced a natural source of light in the same way that we've seen uh, other elves draw upon fonts of power uh, to do said thing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have a relationship with the light, but their connection to it or the avenue with which they've become connected to it is vastly different. Leadrin in particular has had a lot of character evolution over the course of the last several years, especially during uh, the order hall process and, and quest line where you get to see how she has rediscovering not necessarily just her faith and, and faith I'm, I'm air quoting here because it doesn't necessarily mean she has to believe in a higher power, but instead it's more, at least to me and Matt can tell me I'm wrong or not. It's more that she now has that faith in a higher purpose. If that makes sense, like, the Blood Knight started as sort of like a survival thing, first and foremost, and now it's become a thing where they are now noble again. They now feel, I don't want to say righteous in their their endeavors, but I can't really think of a better way to phrase it. They understand that in the grand scheme of the cosmos, what they're doing is more important, and that sort of reinstills the faith. You have to imagine that the High Elves, the Blood Elves, they've gone through a lot over the course of the last several years, look at what happened with, you know, basically the March of, of Arthas with the destruction of silver moon, with everything their people have gone through with the withdrawals and, and everything else, not being helped by their prince and the deals that their prince has made over the course of years. It's really easy to sort of be broken down and go into that survival mode. Whereas now we've seen sort of this theme of purpose and building and understanding and the Blood Elves becoming a more noble people, I guess, be the best way to put it. Or maybe not becoming, but realizing that side of themselves again, where they've spent so long, like, downtrodden. When, you know, their former allies wouldn't take them back and they were mean to them and, and basically wrote them off and told them that they were, like, you know, nothing. Uh, to now being included in not just a, a single purpose, but of the Horde, but the reestablishing of the importance of their people and now having that connection with the Nightborn, which has been cemented through now the marriage of one of the blood elves with, you know, one of the Nightborn, two very important members and factions of, of the world. It's, it's interesting to see sort of the reemergence of the blood elves as way more than just punching bags. And I think that's more where that faith comes in. And I'm going to stop talking to let Matt kind of go at this a little bit and see what he thinks. I think uh, to a degree, what you have to look at is using Liadrin's journey as the journey of the Night Elves in miniature. It's sort of a, a microcosm. When you go to Warcrafts 2 in, in the beginning of 3, uh, the, the then High Elves have priests who channel the light. Liadrin is canonically one of those priests. And what happens is when Arthas manages to walk his undead army all the way to the Sunwell and despoil it... Uh, a lot of them were like, you know, if the light was really worth venerating, how could this possibly have happened? We trusted in it. We believed in it. And now our our hope is gone. And keep in mind that the Sunwell was always like the previous version of the Sunwell that, that uh, Dathrimas Sunstrider created um, was always central to Blood Elf. I mean, sorry, High Elf culture. It was sort of their covenant with this new place they had made for lack of a better word. It was them saying, this is our home. This is, you know, we come from a moon worshiping night focused culture, but we've turned our back on all of that. We're a new people 
and we're you know we are aligned with the sun and the day and you know the whole sunstrider name kind of became a it became what the the high elves were they were sunstriders they walked by day they they lived in a in a perpetual i want to say almost uh, a perpetual autumn like just as the sun is setting this this permanent uh you know light facing at the end of things vibe that's what they were kind of living in so when that got destroyed when the sunwell was destroyed it wasn't just that it was the arcane uh addiction although it absolutely was that was absolutely a huge part of it because remember the original sunwell was made using water from the uh well of eternity it was essentially a mini sunwell so that was absolutely part and parcel of the problem but it wasn't all of it a lot of it was cultural a lot of it was that idea of this thing is the focus of all of our hopes and dreams. This is the 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 font by which we created Quelthalos and the 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 entire you know Eversong Woods and all of it. Their kingdom that they had taken, you know, keep in mind they had you know taken it from the trolls. That that's indisputable. They came up and they just carved themselves this kingdom right out from under the trolls. When it got destroyed, there was it was like anything else. Like if if you think about any sort of cultural touchstone, if it gets destroyed in this manner, there's a lot of different reactions for Liadrin. The reaction was, you know, re- ultimately she rejected the light. She believed that if the light could allow this, either the light wasn't truly a holy thing or it didn't really care about them. Cause if it, if it was both worth worthy of their veneration and cared about them, it would never have allowed this. Uh, so that was, you know, when Kael'thas basically comes back to Quel'Thalas, uh, I don't, I think he sent Ramath. He sent Ramath uh, with Muru in tow. And yes. Say here, this is, this is for you, my people to help you, uh, you know, endure all that you've been having to endure, you know, while the Sunwell has been gone. This is the first, for lack of a better word, the first down payment on my promise to, to hate, to, to save us. And so Ramath was like, this is what, you know, our, our Lord Kael'thas, uh, has, has provided you with. And I believe it was actually Liadrin who, who was the first of the blood Knights. Yes. She was the very first. And, and they, they tapped her to, for that role because she had used the light before, but in this case, they weren't using the light the way a supplicant does. They weren't using it like um, <clears throat> we used to talk a while back about how Anduin used to channel the light in a way that he was like almost asking the light to to come fill him, like an empty vessel, and, giving it yeah. giving it purchase. Right? That wasn't this. This was very similar to dark shamanism. No, no, that wasn't what I was going to say. Uh, there's a, a a character named Zeliak who I come back to all the time. All the time. Yep. Because yeah. there's a good reason for it. Yeah, he's an, an undead that, that you find in Naxxramas. He's one of the four horsemen, and he can control and touch the light. Uh, he's, his strength of will is still so strong that he can just straight up, even though he is directly working for the Lich King, that he is an undead animated by and under the control of the Lich King. And keep in mind, this shows you that it isn't strength of will. Because Eliak is so strong-willed that even though he is in a rotting undead body, he can call the light, and it's destroying him every time he does it, and he doesn't. He can still do it. He can overcome the pain. He can overcome the light's reluctance to come to the aid of somebody who is directly serving another cosmic force, and he can make the light do what he wants. And that's what the Blood Elves did when they started using the, the light to become Blood Knights. And 
what's really interesting about it is it didn't even hurt them because they were not undead. They were not that inimical to the light. So when they forced the light to do what they wanted it to do, it, it was, if anything, a rush. They enjoyed it. It felt, it felt empowering. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until Kael'thas showed up in, uh, in Quel'Thalas and took Muru and went to the Sunwell with him that they realized how dependent they had become on it. Mm-hmm. And so of all people, Liadrin, who was first of the Blood Knights, swallowed her pride and went to Shatrath and said, you know, my people, for my people, I come here. Uh, and that's when she found out that while while she was busy blaming the light and believing it was either unworthy or non-existent or just didn't care about them, Muru had seen this coming. All of it. Muru had seen all of this coming because Muru had access to Velen and Velen had visions of the future. Mm-hmm. So Muru knew when he stayed in what we now call Tempest Keep, uh, he knew that they were coming and he knew that he would be taken and he knew that they would take him to Azeroth. And he knew furthermore that he wasn't coming back. There was no survival for him. There was no Muru goes into regeneration for a while. Muru knew he was going to effectively die and he still did it on the off chance that he could help the blood elves. That's why when Liadrin goes to Shatrath expecting nothing, uh, Velen and Adal help her because that's what you do. That's how the light works. When someone asks you for its help, you help it. You know, you, the light does not, is what Velen once said this to somebody else, uh, a dying, uh, broken in the swamp of sorrows. But he said, the light, you know, the light does not abandon its champions, but it does not work unopposed in this world's realm. And that's the, that's the reason why the light couldn't stop what happened to the blood elves because the light was not fighting the light is not omnipotent. It is not all powerful and can banish all f- opposition. It has equals that are its rivals. And that's what the problem was. That's why the Sunwell got destroyed. That's why the blood elves were created. That's why there was no cavalry that came to stop Arthas. Everybody who could fight him already was. He didn't win because, you know, he, he in a way, the conception that the blood elves had when they were the high elves of the light was that of a child thinking their parents can do anything. You know, like when you're five and you think, Oh my, my dad could totally beat up Andre the giant, uh, or, you know, somebody alive now. I know Andre the giant's an old, an oldie deep cut there, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, Everyone, every kid thinks their parents are amazing. And then you come to a point where one way or another, you are disabused of that notion. Either, you know, it can be for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different ways, but, in this case, it's simply the realization that, oh no, I've been looking at this like a child. And so Liadrin joins forces with the Shattered Sun Offensive, and together they fight their way through the Sunwell uh, Plateau. They get to Kael'thas and take him out. They go all the way to the Sunwell Chamber inside the Plateau, and that's they stop uh, Kil'jaeden from using it to travel through into Azeroth. And return the girl who was effectively the Sunwell all along to her position within it while also adding Muru to it. And when Muru is added to it, since Muru has been killed, we've, we've been fighting his, you know, for lack of a better word, his void Lord, his, his empty self, right? Yeah. Uh, we fight and destroy it. But when Muru is added to the Sunwell, the Sunwell becomes not just an arcane font, but a font of the light itself. So, are they still using it the way that the Blood Elves used the Light of Muru? No. 
they don't have to. The Sunwell is their symbol. It's the, for lack of a better word, it is the concrete representation of the covenant that they have forged with the light. Whereas it's, they don't, they don't go to the light as children expecting it to fix everything. They now come to the light as survivors who understand the stakes that if the light fails, if the light is not supported, everything can be destroyed. There are forces in the cosmos that are inimical to life and they must be opposed. There's a reason that the blood elves turned on the void elves so hard from their perspective. The void elves are not just blasphemous, but they are a present danger. They are the thing that fights the light and the light can't save the world. If they has to, you know, if it's always busy fighting these guys, mm-hmm. they're a threat. And it's also why so, they, they take so kindly to the nightborn uh, because when we've, when we've talked about this before and we talked about this in the elf episode, they understand the transition that they've had to go through yeah, they, and the desperation of it. Yeah. They understand, you know, you suddenly, you don't have the thing that made you who you were. You don't have the, the, the life you thought you were going to lead. Your home city has been cut off from everything. You're just, the desperation is what really it's the bond that the blood elves and the nightborn have. Um, and in a way that's pretty dangerous, but also in a way they can each, they can speak a common language to each other to, to quote, um, Spock and McCoy from Star Trek four. I think actually it's, is it, yeah, is it four or five? It's five Star Trek five. You mean I have to die to share your insights of de- on death? You, yes. You, you lack the context to discuss it. The, the night elves didn't have the context until fairly recently to understand what the Nightborn were talking about, mm-hmm. but the blood elves did now, neither the blood elves nor the nightborn might have the context to discuss loss with the night elves who might actually understand it better than them now. Uh, And we'll see how that works coming forward. There's going to be some stuff in, in 10.1 and beyond that deals with that. But for right now, are they draining the light or using it the way that they did when they were first founded? No, it's, it's like a, it's literally like saying that the Ark of the covenant is serves not the Ark of the Covenant is not the Covenant, but it is a symbol of the Covenant. It's, it had the original ten, you know, ten commandments inside it. Uh, the, the Sunwell is not the Covenant that they have made. It is mm-hmm. the mark of it. It is the symbol of it. It is literally where Muru's resting place is. Muru, who literally died for them, Muru came to the sun, came to Quel'Thalas, knowing he would die, on the hope that he could restore the Blood Elves to that connection with the Light in a more mature way. He gave himself for it, knowing there'd be no coming back. There'd be no more Muru. And keep in mind, the loss of every Naru is a big deal. When a Naru dies, it's a big deal because they don't, there's, there's no, normally their cycle is eternal. So when they die for real, that is a massive sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It isn't like they know they're going to die anyway. They know they could keep existing anyway. And yet they choose to die to, to make lives better for others. That's what happens with Muru. And that's one of the things that the blood elves honor that. And that's why the blood elves respect Velen. I don't know. I wouldn't say they were buddies. No, but they, they definitely have, him. they definitely have a very deep respect for him at this point. Yeah. Because it was Velen who said, no, we were always going to help you as soon as you asked. Like we just couldn't come and try and force it on you because you would not be receptive. We had to wait for you to come to us. Mm-hmm. We knew that that was the case, so we did. So yeah, that that's my answer to this question. Hopefully, it's it's gotten somewhere along the way. 
I think uh, I think uh, it's a good answer. And hopefully that uh, that gives you some more context for Arthel. Uh, we're going to move on to our next one, which comes from Arlea. Uh, I've been spending too much time in these vaults. Maybe not so much a question as fun speculation. What is the deal with Naltharian's apparent obsession with Ezjara? We see a night elf statue in several areas he controlled. Usually it's unnamed. In the Sakara vaults, it is specifically labeled as unnamed, which only makes it more suspicious, but definitely looks like Ashara pre-tentacles. Adding to this, you can get numerous clockwork Ashara items by exchanging Neltharian coins with the proto-blingtron you find in the Sakara vaults. And I mean numerous. And it can be assumed he made them. We already know he has a penchant for a kind of self-insertion fanfiction, see Opera of the Aspects, but there's a, there, here's the really fun part. We know he finally gave in to corruption 20,000 years ago. We know the War of the Ancients, where Ashara falls and accepts Nazoth's deal, was 10,000 years ago. Was Nazoth already watching or waiting to claim Ashara, or did Nelth, Nelth suggest it? Because up to this point, she was making deals with the Legion. Were they, Nelth and Ashara, involved romantically, perhaps, or did he just wish they were? Or was Nazoth already aware of all of it, probably, and just, uh, I'm assuming this was, it kind of got, got off here, but taking advantage of it. Um, there's also a simpler answer, potentially, here as well. Dragons were around and watching the mortal races for a very long time. They were cognizant of what was going on in the world, even if they weren't directly interacting with said individuals. When you do the time walking uh, War of the Ancients, when you go back and you deal with Azara, what are in the air trying to help fight the Legion that are pushing their way through? You see dragons. Dragons were present there. They were paying attention. And it is safe to assume that they understood what Azara was as far as a powerful leader goes. Matt and I have talked about this a lot. In her mortal years, and at the time before she became uh, octopus queen to, to the Naga there, she was beloved by all. She was put above all of the other uh, elves and in many places placed above Elune themselves. They renamed an entire city, stripping Elune's name from it and giving it her name, Zinashari. It was Elundris, by the uh, way. Elundris, by the way, yep. But it's that is fascinating and we've talked about it how do you think Neltharion who is you know presumably working on a legion of uh creatures that or has a plan to make an army that is completely loyal to him completely bound to him completely uh chained to his will and purpose and thought are then to look at Ashara and go what is she doing is she weaving magic is this natural charisma how can I take advantage of this also, keep in mind that Arzara loved statues of herself. They were everywhere. They're still everywhere. You go to ruins, you see like elf statues and all these weird places, and it's her because people worshipped her. They they erected idols of her, and maybe he thought that that was a means of control, and maybe it was. Who knows? We haven't we've not gotten to, haven't gotten that deep down into the well with her quite yet, but. I could see a dragon looking at that and going, well, I see how Titans do things with things that are wrought from stone. I deal with Titan constructs all of the time. Our supposed best friend was essentially made of stone. So if she's doing this and she has all these things erected in her presence or of her visage, maybe that's how she's controlling it. And I can see him just taking them. 
you're the presumption that you you make here of that he crafted them. I don't think so. I don't think he would have been that type of person because if you look at what he really, even before he was corrupted, he was very self centered. Things were done in his image or made to remind him of his gloriousness. I don't think he would craft one of her, but when elves aren't looking, going in and just taking statues from like outposts or smaller towns or wherever, maybe there's night elves that existed that were like, Hey, didn't we have a statue of our queen here in the middle of town last night? And now it's gone. Huh? Weird. I guess we'll just make another one. Maybe there are stories of the, the disappearances of them. There could have been an obsession with her, but it doesn't necessarily have to be romantic. I personally think it was more along the lines of him trying to unravel what it was that made all of the night elves so loyal to her, so bound to her, because that's something that still hasn't been talked about and still hasn't been revealed. And it just seemed to fit in with his personality and what he was doing. Matt, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, uh, you're completely wrong. <laughs> when he was Neltharian, when he was making Abaris and doing things on the Dragon Isles, we don't even know if Ashara was queen yet. We don't know when Ashara became queen. We don't know how long Ashara ruled the Empire of the Night Elves, the Kaldorai Empire. We have no idea. We do not know how old she was when we saw her as queen at the fall, when the the you know Legion was invading and everything was being broken down, the War of the Ancients. We don't know how long she'd been on the throne. It's never said. Yeah, we don't know what year oh, she was born either, because we that yeah. was never never talked about either. And you know, yeah, a long live been... a long live race like the elves, that's uh, you know, yeah. very hard but, to pin down. And especially since we know that elves are long lived, even without the immortality granted by the the uh, trees, the world trees. Yep. Um, without Nordrasil, they still live. You know, look at what happened with Dathomir. He lived thousands of years. Um, in Dathomir was alive during the time of the War of the Ancients. He'd been alive for a while, and he only had a grandson by the time of the Second War, which was literally ten thousand years later. You know, he could very well have lived well into his son's reign, which was only about, it was like, you know, um, Anisterion was, was king a thousand years ago when the troll war happened. So for 9,000 years, he could have been alive for all of it. He could have been alive up until Caleb was born. Cause that's the other thing. We don't even know how old Caleb is. We know that he's way older than the people he went to school with because blood elves and high elves measured that time differently. Like you, you, you could live maybe, who knows, maybe you lived a hundred years and you were still considered a, ch- a baby. Maybe you lived a thousand years before that you got teenage. We don't really know how that works. So, I mean, nothing you said is, is provably false. It's just not provably true. We don't know who that elf is. We don't know if it's a loon. It could be a loon. It could be some other member of, of who ruled the Kaldari empire before Ashara. We don't even know. All we know for sure is that Ashara was chosen to be the queen because of her eyes, because she was born with the golden eyes that signify a great destiny. Which she was and the the first, right? Like that we know, I don't know of. She was absolutely the first. She's the first one that we've ever heard of. Uh, we're told that she had them. We're told that that's why she was made queen. And very quickly, she proved to at least be powerful enough to back it up, mm-hmm. because Ashara was one of the most powerful sorcerers that the world had ever seen. Still is. No, but I just mean right now she's even more terrifying. But back then, think of a child who was so powerful that like all those other highborn spellcasters were willing to bow to her. They were willing to put her up above themselves. That's how powerful she was. Yeah, so much so that she only viewed uh, potentially Sargeras as her equal. 
Yeah. And it, it wasn't like people could really argue with her on it. Uh, so is, is it possible that she was something in Eltharian was studying the way you suggest? Absolutely. It's possible, but we don't know because we, yeah, don't we have know no way when, of knowing. Yeah. We don't know when those statues were you know, brought to him. We don't know even who, if Ashar was alive when he was, when he was stu- doing all that stuff. And that's the interesting thing about it is Ashar could well have been 10,000 years old by the time, even if night elves at that time didn't live 10,000 years, that doesn't mean Ashara couldn't. Yep. Cause she's like I said, ridiculously powerful, so powerful that she didn't even have to do anything. Well, and Mana Roth also submitted to her. Also think of it this way too. There's a, a shaman link here that I'm going to bring up too, which is Shadrasil, the scepter of tides. It has that water in it, right? That is made for restorative purposes. It's said to be one of the strongest healing items ever created. uh, And it has that sort of that power. And it was her scepter. It was her scepter of power for a very long time. Um, This is before she was a Naga. This is before she she made the deal, before she fell. Um, It didn't disappear until after the fall. That could have also been a way that she was keeping herself alive forever because we don't know. We don't know the extent of the power of of the Well of Eternity and what that meant for those that knew how to tap into it. Because you point out that she's a super powerful wizard or sorceress or whatever you want. She's an arcane wielder. What is the blood of a Titan? What is what is the Well of Eternity but an arcane font? And now you're just carrying a piece of of it around with you at all times. Your palace is literally overlooking it. Like she, she could have manipulated time and space in the same way that the Titans allowed dragons to do so that she could have lived forever. Well, plus, I mean, also think about the fact that the entire world of the entire war of the ancients happened because Ashara assigned a group of highborn to probe the well. Yeah. And they reached through it into where Sargeras was reaching forward to try to find Azeroth. You know, Titan to Titan. And that's, if Ashara is, you know, tapping into that, I, I have stated to this day that I think one of the things that Ashara might be aiming to do is literally replace Azeroth. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. I think that that, that is one of the, the items that is definitely on the checklist of this seems plausible. Yeah, I, I and so I think it's very likely that if you're an Altharian, she might just be somebody you put on a list of, you know, possible threats, you know, but you don't immediately go after her because as powerful as the aspects are, the in the time that they existed, the Calderai Empire literally brushed aside the trolls like they were nothing. Yep. And the trolls successfully fought against, you know, the Akir, who were the servants of the old gods. Mm-hmm. So anybody who can fight them and keep going is is dangerous. Anybody who can take people who can do that and just push them off to go live in places they don't want. Like, yeah, you can have that mountain you're so happy with. We we get our own and it's better. And you can you can live over there in deserts and stuff. We don't want deserts. And the, the trolls had to take it. They couldn't beat them. They tried. And they were like, what's happening? We're getting destroyed. So there's a, there is a lot that we don't understand about this period of time and we don't know and that might come up. I mean, it's very possible we'll see some stuff about Ashara in this expansion. We don't know. Uh, maybe we'll like we'll get a, a clue as to what she's currently up to. Yeah, because don't forget, she's been quiet for an entire expansion. Like, yeah, which is, you know. That's dangerous. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see what happens. But I think it is definitely worth keeping in mind that we don't know the answer to your question uh, it is certainly plausible that that Neltharion was interested in Meshar in any one of a number of ways. I think the least interested would have been anything carnal 
or sexual. I would agree. I think that that's the he least. Had, he had his sexual obsessions. He, 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 you know, he was obsessed at his heart. Neltharion was a evil warped twisted dragon. His humanoid form and the humanoid forms of the other dragons, the visages were only useful. They weren't interesting. He didn't care about them. He used them. He used his visage form. They used theirs. It was a utilitarian thing. He didn't like them. Would you imagine being like this omnipotent, like the practically omnipotent, powerful, you know, monster thing. And then you get like, you know, now you're human. Okay. You're sure. I'll, I'll go talk to those humans. That's fine. Can, can we be done with this now? So I can turn back into the thing I truly am. Yeah. So I don't think that Neltharian was, was trying to pick up on Ashara. Uh, I think he was just, if he was interested in her, he was interested in her as a worthy rival and as somebody who was actually a threat, you know, to be watched very carefully. You don't push in and try and take her out immediately because, you know, he knew full well, especially by the end when she was pushing the Legion around, if the only one in the Legion that, that anyone thought could stop her from the Legion, people from the Legion thought this, that only Sargeras maybe kill Jaden or, or Archimonde. And that's a maybe a huge, maybe when you're saying maybe to kill Jaden and Archimonde, that tells you how, how dangerous she is. Ooh, the first how time, don't forget that we, that we, the first time we faced Archimonde, it took 40 of the world's most powerful heroes and several armies to fight him back. And Ajara probably could have just done that on her own. Yeah. She's a danger. And you keep eye, you keep your eyes on danger, especially like I mean, just going back to it too, like the whole brushing aside of a loon. Like I don't want to downplay that. Like getting your people to completely forget the god with which they worship is not a small feat. And again, like Matt pointed out, she backed that up every step of the way. Like it's man, it's just one of those things. I hope we get more about it. I really do because I want to see like what the dragons knew about it. Because that I'm going to go on a side tangent here real quick. But this is something that I really want to see more of, and I'm hoping that 10.1 brings it and we get it in 10.1.5 or, or in all the, the interstitiaries. I want to know what the dragons were doing watching the mortal races because we know that they were. We know that they were approximating cities based off of mortals. They were doing all these things based off of mortals to a certain extent. I want to know what their records say. I want to know how they envisioned uh, mortals, how they interpreted their lifestyles, how they, you know, internalized it more, because that was one of the things that they told us leading up to this expansion was like, oh, you know, Drakthir had cities and it was based off the approximation of more, you know, mortal races and and those that were Titan Forge that have evolved down. I'd like to see how their research notes read, because we already know that they, they had them. We know that Tyr had them. We know that. Now, Therian had them. We know that it, they're probably not alone in that, that others probably had observations that they either wrote down or, or looked at. We get some of that from Vera Straz uh, in his conversations and a little bit about that. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see if we get more of that moving forward. So we're going to go ahead and move on to our next question. Hopefully that answers your question, Arlea. Uh, and this one comes from Kellisan. Hi, first question here on Lore Watch. I'm Kelasan, human until they make an ad health elves paladin. I had found that in the Warcraft universe, the first humans arose around 15,000 years ago, five millennia before the Sundering. However, the Arathi Empire, Arathor, Arathor Empire, only arose roughly 2.8 thousand years ago. 
What was humanity doing for the roughly 12 millennia between them? Which, fun fact, is roughly the same length of time that human civilization and real life has existed. On a second note, also, on a side note, where did Azeroth get her name? Matt, do you have strong opinions about the human empire? Well, first off, I mean, we really can't say that they first aroused 15,000 years ago. Um, That's a decent ballpark, but we don't actually know. Mm -hmm. Um, We do know that humans didn't really start being something separate from the Vrykul until around the Sundering. Uh, the time that they, the um, Tyr and Arcadis and Ironia went south with a whole bunch of uh, followers, including, you know, the ancestors to some dwarves, the ancestors to humans, and so forth. Um, that was around the time of the Sundering. It was not exactly at the same time, but you'll notice that um, during the War of the Ancients, Kurtalos Ravencrest and his family are already known for that time that they did something to the, the uh, Ravens of Odin that, that earned them the name Ravencrest, but it also earned them the enmity of Odin's Ravens. And Odin, he left, you know, his departure in the Halls of Valor. That's, that's an as yet not really well-placed in time moment. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of time going on here. As you've pointed out, uh, in, in fact, you're actually way optimistic when you say that human civilization has existed for 12,000 years because we don't have any actual evidence of anything older than seven or 8,000 years old. Yeah. Uh, like like Jericho or Katal Hayuk. These, these are maybe 9,000 BC at, at, the, at the furthest back. And keep in mind that we don't have any writing from them. We just have, they had a city here. Uh, so it's... It's complicated. And technically, te- and technically, as their descendants of the Vrykul, their civilization could be longer than that. It could be, or it could not be. And we don't, like I said, but but what ended up happening, what you're asking about is, for a while, uh, there were Vrykul with them that were protecting them. Uh, and, and basically, when those Vrykul died, there's a long period where, essentially, children with no parents had to raise themselves to adulthood and had no culture to speak of. Mm-hmm. So they had to invent one. Um, and one of the things we know is that for here's an example, uh, the sword that, um, that Thoradin was using the, the sword that we, we get uh, troll, uh, not troll Kalar. <sighs> troll Kalar is another good example, but it's not troll Kalar. So it's the arms artifact weapon. I'm sorry. I can't remember Sam right now. Uh, but that sword was actually originally a Rykul weapon that was repurposed. They reforged it to work for a human, uh, which means it was probably Stromkar. Thank you. Stromkar was probably originally some kind of short sword. Mm-hmm. Like, and then they, you know, they, they took it and gave it a hilt that would work for a human. And now it's a great sword because they didn't do much to the blade. And so now it's this enormous thing. There's a long period of time where human society is essentially at the mercy of all these other societies that are like fighting on a level that they can't even come close to because they don't have a culture. Um, you see that when the, the high elves reach now separated off Eastern kingdoms, they're immediate. They, they, they go to the place uh, in Lordaeron, what is now Lordaeron and they're going to settle there, but they're like, Oh God, no, there's some horrible presence here. Well, keep in mind that was one of humanity's tribes was in that area. Uh, and by the time of, of Thoradin, it was ruled by a guy named Lordane, and they were still basically there in this place that had a horrible nightmare monster in it that was being held down by the power of the light. 
Mm-hmm. And those people worship the light. The source of light worship in human culture is Lordane and his people, the ones that were the guardians of the t- of the Tomb of Tear. The uh, what are the, the Order of the Silver Fist or whatever? Yeah, well, that's one of the orders named after uh, this idea. But it was Lordane's people uh, who the the reason Lordaeron is named Lordaeron is that's that named the the land of Lordane. And, uh, it, it's and so you're you're asking what were they doing for all that time? For much of that time, they were either keeping to themselves or trying to avoid getting sucked into a fight between very powerful forces that had uh, access to abilities they couldn't match. And yeah, because they they, 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 they hadn't been taught power. magic for a long time. They hadn't nope. been they 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 basically had access to essentially martial arms and not even the best of the best on that one because you had like the makers of the dwarves, you had the smiths of the elves, you had. Uh, all these other ones that were like outclassing them in a lot of capacity, just in sheer resource alone. Yeah, and also, I mean, those those peoples kept their traditions more or less, mm-hmm. and when they lost them, they lost them because they abandoned them. Yeah, even uh, even trolls. Look at trolls. Like even they they yeah. had access. They had access to shamanism, which is something the humans couldn't even touch at the time. Yeah. So when humanity first started rising to prominence. Uh, was only around the time you just mentioned because they made a deal with the high elves mm-hmm. because the high elves, the high elves were very good at magic, but they weren't warrior types. They weren't, they weren't a warrior people. The trolls were both, you know, shamanistic and a warrior people and were like riding a wave of resentment where they'd finally gotten, they'd gotten to the point where they'd invented a new kind of shamanism, which involved essentially letting one of the lower you worship embody itself in you. Mm-hmm. And this was something that the night elves had no, I'm not the, sorry. The, uh, the high elves had no idea what to do about it. They're like, oh, what is this? How do we fight this? And, uh, around that time they were looking for allies at the same time. The trolls were like oppressing and attacking human tribes and settlements just around the time that Thoradin had said, okay, enough of this, enough of being pushed around by the trolls or the elves or anybody. And they, he united his people for the express purpose of you of ending that status quo. First, he had to fight a series of wars against other tribes of humans who didn't want to unify. Humans had been non-unified for thousands of years, and that's how they liked it. So he had to go from place to place and force them, except when he went to Lordaeron, and he, he Lordaeron was like, you don't have the power to conquer us. He goes, yes, but what you, good is your power doing you? What good is the light doing you if you keep it here, trapped in this place, and nobody else knows about it? So why don't you join up with me and w- the two of us and, you know, eventually Thoras Trollbane, one of the Trollbanes came in, uh, the three of us will unify our people and then we'll, we'll settle with the people who've been keeping us like this for thousands of years. So they did. And they did when they, the, the high elves basically came to them hat, hat in hand, Thoradin was like, Oh, so now you want us to lay down our bodies so that you get to keep your shining magic, magical kingdom, huh? Tell you what, you train a hundred of my people in that art and I'll come the second you call for it. don't do it. And you can fight them by yourselves and I'll take on the winner. And then the high elves, you know, at this time, Anisterion was the King, uh, saw that, you know, a, if that happened, even if they beat the trolls, there's, there was very little chance they'd be able to stand up to the humans because they would just be so weakened. Uh, but B, if they did this, if they could train the humans and the humans could actually learn arcane magic, which was an open question to them, they're like, well, you know, we can try and do it. And it, maybe if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Who cares? Then it turned out that the humans could take the arcane magic extremely quickly. Cause keep in mind, it, this was the kind of process that took elves years and years and years to master the, 
Human 100 were ready to go like within a couple of years. And that's basically the story of that. The story of training humans into magic is the story of the elevation of humanity from a, a group of, you know, physically powerful, but ultimately always pushed around people to an ascendant power. Uh, and that's what you see. If you look at the history since then, the, the rise of Dalaran, the, the, the fragmentation of, of uh, Thoradin's empire into the seven kingdoms, the, you know, all of it. It all comes from that moment where Thoradin basically either bluffs or calls Anisterians bluff, depending on how you look at it. Anisterians came into him saying, look, if you don't help us, when they beat us, they're going to come for you. He goes, they come for me all the time. You know, I see, I see trolls all the time. That one over there, the dead one in the corner. Yeah. I just saw him the other day. I made him dead. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm not worried about them coming for me. They come for me constantly. I, so, you know, if you want my help put up and the, the night, the, the high elves did, they put up. And from there, that's why when Anisterian didn't want to join the Alliance in Warcraft two, that's why he ended up having to. Mm-hmm. because he had swore a debt to the bloodline of Thoradin and the only living member of that bloodline was Anduin Lothar. And so he looked at it as, well, if I do this and they lose, at least I got to pay off that blood debt. And if I do this and they win, I can go on my own way and never have to deal with them again because the blood debt will have been paid off. Win-win. Yeah. This is, this is a no brainer for me. Sure. Yeah. I'll help you. So yeah, that's why humans were not as active during that period of time. And for context on some of the timeframes here, I know that there was an interview. I want to say it was with, I think, uh, Kaplan, not Kaplan. Uh, no, it was Jeff Kaplan uh, and uh, Jalen Brack a long time ago about Death Knights, Tuscar and Arthas's and stuff like that. And I think it was like way back in like 2008. But they also talk about the origin of humans being descended from the Vikrul, because this is where we start to learn a little bit about it because of uh, Wrath of the Lich King on the horizon, right? Um, and they they throw out some years there that it was around 15,000 years ago at the current time then that uh, I think it was like the Dragon Flayer clan, if I remember correctly, um, mm-hmm. that they believed that the gods had abandoned them because they were getting these weak, ugly, pink, screamy babies uh, that didn't grow up to be, you know, Vikrul. They were puny and weak. Um, and they, they were, you know, a punishment. Keep in mind that these Reichel didn't even know about the fact that they were in fact, small and puny and weak yeah. compared to their direct ancestors because they did never met them. Yep. So like, it, it's, it's an interesting thing because we, while we've been told that, and there are certain things to sort of back that up time is time outside of the span of the first war is really hard in Warcraft because yeah, they don't nail down an actual date. Right. They just say at some point between this time and this time, or they'll say, you know, 15,000 years ago. And it's like, was it literally 15 million thousand years ago? Or was it around 15,000 years? You yeah. Know? So there's, there's a lot there. And the fact that humans have sort of, when you're pointing out, come to like prominence as much as they did. Uh, yeah, maybe it's been relatively quick, but also, 2,800 years in terms of human lifespan is not very quick. (laughs) I mean, there's the fact that like for a long time during that whole period where if we go with the 15,000 year uh, date as you know, when the first real human tribes without any vehicle in them were around, let's, let's assume that that's the time when it happened. Look at who's on the stage. The 
both the Amani and Gurubashi empires, mm-hmm. the Akira are still out there. The, the night elves probably start establishing their empire. There's the, uh, the Mogu down in Pandaria. Uh, yeah. The Pandaren, cause the Pandaren, the, the Pandaren rebellion was about 12,000 years ago. So like, yeah. uh, there, there was the, that entire thing was still happening. Yeah. It, there's just no way to, for like, it's, it's very hard to imagine humans muscling their way onto that scene. Uh, against, you know, those guys and saying, yeah, we're stepping on up with our, with my daddy's sword that is way too effing big for me because I never grew to be taller than six feet. Uh, you know, but I'm, we're still, we're tough. It just, no, for a long time, they weren't, they didn't have a culture. They didn't have an identity. They didn't know who they were. They didn't even know the very cool stuff because everybody who could have taught it to them died. So they didn't like, they were sitting around with the books they couldn't read and, you know, art you know, art objects that they didn't really understand and and swords that were just way too freaking big to be believed. And they're like, why is this sword so big? Never, not even knowing because, you know, your grandpa was 12, was 20 feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how much else we can add to that one. So I think we're just going to move on to the next one. Hopefully that answers your question. Um, And the last one, as far as how Azeroth got her name, I'm going to go ahead and assume that that was uh, the Pantheon coming and declaring that that's what the name was. Whether or not that's actually the case, who knows? Uh, it could also yeah, be know. it could also be the design of the first ones because there's a whole lot of Eroths around there. So who knows? Um, but we're going to move on to one last question here. I think we have time for from Carbon or Car- Carban. Hopefully, I got that right. Didn't give me a pronunciation. Please give me a pronunciation. With all the hints we've seen in the Forbidden Reach and the Book of the Old Gods that we find, which mentions five old gods, then in the room with the final raid boss of 10.1, there's a stained glass window of what looks like an old god. What do you think the chances are there are new old gods we haven't yet officially discovered? Pretty high. Uh, The term old god is pretty broad. Well, we know uh, that there are other old gods that didn't even ever end up on Azeroth. Correct, because they've they've wound up on other planets or in the material plane uh, in general, right? I mean, even going all the way back to to uh, Burning Crusade, when you go to the um, the uh, I want to say the Ar- the Architraz, yeah, the Architraz, uh, you you fight uh, Harb- Harbinger Skyrus, and he even says, you know, we 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 span the universe as numerous as the stars. And no force in the universe can make us bend our mighty knee, not even the Legion. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there are a lot more than just the ones that showed up on Azeroth. They are all over the place. We know of at least one planet, if not more than one, where the Void utterly dominated it. We've seen one uh, in in Legion. Uh, mm-hmm. In, in the... Uh, I can't remember his name, but the, the fight inside... The, uh, Astro- the, the Astromancer shows us a world yeah. that's completely consumed by Void. Tentacles wriggling from it. We've made the assumption, and I made the assertion a long time ago, that that's Koresh. Because Koresh is still out there, and we know that it was completely consumed by Void. Yeah, and but there's also the world that Sargeras destroyed. Mm-hmm. That had a nascent Titan inside of it. That was corrupted by the, by the Void. And um, so the let, void certainly has been doing stuff for a long time all over the universe. And and let's think about it in some other contexts too, right? So we know that there are the four big ones that we've talked about before, which was uh Cthun, Nazoth, Yogg-Saron, and Yasharaj, right? Well, mm-hmm. of uh, we 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 know that they they sort of ran the show. They had subjugated uh Ragnaros, they have subjugated Alakir, they had subjugated um why can't I think of his name? Neptalon, and they had subjugated Therizane, or at least attempted to. Um, those are essentially the, the elementals. They they had their own thing. 
But going back, we know that Yashiraj was sort of plucked from the, the world, was destroyed and crushed and broken into what became the Shah, but also more than just the Shah. We know that pieces of old gods can essentially evolve and transform. Let's look at another old god that we met not too long ago, Gahun. While it was the effect of tampering from the Titans, it still had its seed born from the flesh of an old god. We know that old god flesh can be carved off and can gain sentience on its own. Look at Zalatath. If Zalatath is left alone, is that something that could flourish into that the rivals that of an old god? Maybe. We don't know. We also know that possibly like Gahun is being is counted sometimes as an old god. It is. And yeah, Gahun right. was literally just created by the Titans trying to study old gods. Yeah. They were like, what is this corruption deal? Why do things keep getting corrupted by them? And so they essentially pulled that out and made it its own problem. Because what it looks like it, from from the description of how old gods were, were thrown into the universe and sort of landed places, it almost feels like if enough corruption is allowed to spread, that that corruption essentially just gains a central sentience. Like that's just inherent to what it does. That's inherent to the chaos of being an old god. So there's probably tons of them. And we also... Here's the other thing. We don't know how many pieces of old gods were contained by Titans or sent to different facilities. Matt's pointed this out multiple times. We know that there are a ton of facilities on Azeroth that have been named that we don't see, that we haven't gone to yet. And while every bit of land we explore presents more and more of them, there's more. that means there are more and more facilities where old god bits could have been. They could have been under containment or studied or whatever the case is and maybe flourished and grew and became old gods in their own right based off of whatever corruption they had. We also know that there are lands beyond what we know that we haven't visited yet. We've talked about this recently. We talked about the lands of Avalon, right? Or Avalorn, I think it was. Avalorn, yeah. Yeah. Um, we talked about that's a land that exists. It's out there. It's it's. We don't know how big it is. We don't know if it's an entire another continent. We don't know if it's an island. We don't know if it's a, another state of being. We don't even know if it's a pocket dimension or whatever the case is. But we do know that whatever lives there is able to fight against the Titan Forged, was able to push back against the Keepers. But that's another landmass. That's another landmass that, in theory, was connected to the major landmass at the beginning that had all the old god bits on it. Well, what if there's something there? What if there's another old god that lives there? Or what if there's another old god that's burrowed its way deeper into Azeroth? We don't know. And that's one of the the cool things about old gods in WoW is a catch-all term. It is a void corruption catch-all term that can lead to essentially anything. It is, by its very nature, ironically, infinitely possible. And I'm going to shut up because I hear Matt queuing up. I will just point out that we know for absolute sure of one world where an old god was fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fizandi, the world we find out about uh, in Shadowlands, because it's where Theranax, who's the first known night warrior, comes from. Yeah. And it's a world where we saw that there is something that can actually destroy an old god. Uh, didn't we also get something that uh, Anzu would converse with the gods of the abyss? Yes, we absolutely did. Yep. Uh, we're not even sure who the gods of the abyss were. But, but we, we have an idea. That- well, plus, for that matter, we also know that on our uh, Draenor, the burning, you know, the the Outland, they, there's one point where the old gods are attempting to like come back through. There's a, like an actual effort by like cultists of the Arakoa to call the old gods to Draenor, or mm-hmm. what's left of it, out, Outland. So, a the old gods have been there at least once. 
<coughs> and B, they could come back. And the stuff that corrupted the uh, the uh, I'm gonna say the Scarum, but that's not the right word. The Arakoa. Uh, the, the stuff that corrupted the Arakoa that made them wingless, that corrupting influence, that kind of weird red mist that the uh, Horde later on used on Shatrath, mm-hmm. you know, that they dropped on it, that stuff is somehow related to or controlled by the old gods. And there's also some other things that are interesting here, too, because we talked about this a while ago. And we talked about this in the Dragon episode, uh, and we talked about this in general, which is Galakrond is a big question mark. Right. Galakron was created through the tampering of the Titans with the corruption of the old gods infesting it. And it is a thing that exists. It is a thing that its corruption has existed for a while. And we don't know if one, if Galakron's actually dead, there, there might be some mild spoilers, but I'm talking in terms of what we know for concrete. If Galakron is actually dead, if that was the first time it happened, and if what Galakron evolved into constitutes an old god as well. Because it is a primal force that has been completely void corrupted, or at least corrupted by the the influence of that void and that, that sort of old god touch. So if that could happen and that such a powerful being can be created, it's an infinite possibility of what we could be facing down. So there could be a fifth old god. I mean, we can go back on, on an article that Anne wrote many, many, many moons ago on the previous site that it was a tinfoil hat, one of the first tinfoil hats, I think, um, that speculated on the existence of five old gods. We've been hearing about the existence of five old gods for years. There's been tons of stuff in game that have led us to believe that, but there's probably more than that. And Matt, you're hearing up. No, sometimes I just hit the button by mistake. <laughs> but it, it, it'll it be interesting to see what comes next, because I don't think that the ones we know of are the only ones we will we will encounter. Even if nothing more from a storytelling perspective, if Neltharian knew of the old gods existence prior and he did, he probably has more experimentation records and more information about what their true numbers actually were. So it'll be interesting to see that. But I do think that's all we have time for today, unless there's anything else you want to add, Matt. Snuffle up, I guess. Definitely the fifth one. Definitely the fifth one. Ooh, a weird amalgamation of Big Bird and Snuffleupagus. Mm, that sounds Lovecraftian all over it. Uh, but not <laughs> maybe it's racist. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but uh, we're not going to talk about that. Maybe next time we will. Uh, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contribution of Patreon.com slash Blizzard Watch. Your continued support means that this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, better chance at having your question answered on our podcast with Q&A and ads free site experience. Again, if you have questions for the podcast, be sure to send those into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or one of our various Discord channels and specify what show it is for. Uh, but with that, folks, we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.